The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. 44 of Genesis. You know, there are many stirring stories that we can think of. Perhaps you think of a, a great speech, something maybe from your favorite movie or from a favorite book that you've read. Maybe you're a history buff and you're moved by the speeches of the founding fathers and some of the great things that they said. Um, perhaps your mind goes to various uh, speeches delivered in public places. I know a lot of times I think back of a speech that was given before my day, but by Douglas MacArthur when he was relieved of command in the uh, Korean conflict and he was addressing Congress. And he quoted that old soldier uh, ballad, old soldiers never die, they just fade away. And there are many things like that that we hear that just stick in our minds. But when we come to Judas' plea, recognizing that not long ago he was a ruthless, vile man. But now, because of the overwhelming love of God, he is being transformed before our eyes. H.C. Leopold says, this is, this is one of the manliest, most straightforward speeches ever delivered by any man. For depth of feeling and sincerity of purpose, it stands unexcelled. Donald Gray Barnhouse called it the most moving address in all the Word of God. So what I want us to see, first of all, this morning is a refashioned man, a rebuilt man from the inside out. And there are two things that make this plea so moving. One, the circumstances under which it was spoken, and the other, the background of the one who spoke it. Remember that Judah, who pleads for his younger brother Benjamin in chapter 44, is the same brother who counseled in the selling of Joseph 22 years earlier. Judah saw the Midianite traders coming, and he said, look, what's the point of wasting him in death? It's not profitable. And he was even sanctimonious about it. You recall Genesis 37, verses 26 and 27. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hands be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh." And his brothers listened. In other words, they agreed with him. It's hard to imagine anything more hypocritical and vile than that. Yet here in chapter 44, he's pleading for his brother Benjamin. There is the desperation of the pleading. This is not a speech of an Athenian politician, one who has honed his skills of communication. Or a Winston Churchill who once said on one occasion that he spent most of his free time preparing his impromptu speeches. If you've read anything about Churchill, he spent lots of time developing quips and things to say if in a situation with uh, a head of state or a politician. One of my favorites is his quips back and forth with Lady Astor. Uh, there are many of those, but you can, you can read them for yourselves. No, this is a man who, along with his brothers, has been buffeted by gods as few other persons have been. Judah had been starved, abused, imprisoned, 
And then in the midst of this, he received unexpected favor from Joseph. He had been accused of deceitfulness and had suffered the agony of having to stand by and watch the cup be found in Benjamin's sack. His self-confidence was demolished. He was desperate. It's from the lowest point of his being that he pleads so eloquently. You see, when your heart is truly broken and you find yourself at the deepest point, you find the depths of soul you never thought existed. You find God who has been there all along. And your heart begins to change from desperation, cover-up, pleading, protection, to one of absolute surrender, of giving up, because you know there's nowhere else to go. Now, Judah's speech can be broken down in five particular areas, and it really gives us insight into the heart of this man. The first part, he implores Joseph to grant him favor. Verse 18, oh my Lord, please let your servant speak in a word, speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you are like Pharaoh himself. So he's taking Joseph and he's recognizing him to be the man he is, a man of authority, a man of prominence and power. And he wants to make sure that Judah realizes that's who he is. He doesn't want to mess anything up here. The second part, he reminds the governor of the substance and sequences that he had dealt with him earlier. He tells how Joseph had inquired after the, of the brother's family, asking if their father was still alive. Was there any other brothers? And then he goes on to say that when he replied about the aged father and, and what the struggle would be if he was to lose his other son. And so he's he's rehearsing that conversation back and forth that they had last time. And he explained the difficulty, verse 22. And we said, my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. For if he should leave his father, his father would die. But, But then, my Lord, remember your response, verse 23. Then you said to the servants, unless your younger brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So Judah is making it clear, reminding of the conversation they had before and the severity of the prime minister's response. The third part, Judah reports that he had what had taken place when the brothers returned home from their journey. Now these were facts that Joseph would have no way of knowing about, but they corroborate what Joseph had said. He explains how they had relayed the prime minister's demands and how their father protested. Verse 27. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces. And I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs to evil to shield. It's obvious that the father relented and let Benjamin go. His heart is crushed. He doesn't want to lose his son. But if he doesn't let him go, he's going to die of starvation. 
He's in a very terrible place. And it would take a very hard ruler to resist Judah's melting account of the old man's distress. He's pleading to the human side of Joseph. The fourth part, Judah comes to the present dilemma. It's not that Benjamin had been found to have the cup or that the integrity of the brothers had now come into question and their lives in jeopardy, but rather a threat to the life of the old man that Judah desperately loved. He's pleading for Benjamin, but in a larger sense, he's pleading for his father because he knows his father couldn't take truth like this. Genesis 44 Verse 30 and 31. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. You talk about the pleading of a broken heart. You can see in Judah's heart the desperation, but more importantly, the change that's happening in his heart. The fifth part is Judah's personal plea for Benjamin. He explains how he had personally pledged himself for his younger brother's safety. Verse 32 For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. So, he offers to take Benjamin's place and remain in Egypt as the taskmaster's slave. Verse 33. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Have you ever pled to God out of desperation? Have you ever been so broken, that you've cried out to God from the depths of your soul. This is Judah. He's broken. The once proud, vile man, the one who could handle everything, the one who could stand strong, he's flat broken. Now, I want to help get this point across by sharing similar pleas. You know, as I said, the plea of Judah may be the most stirring in all the Bible, but there's at least two others that are right there with it. The first example is the plea of Moses for his people when they made the golden calf in the wilderness. Under the direction of Moses, the people who had left Egypt have come to Mount Sinai. And the Bible says that God descended upon the mountain in the midst of a cloud of smoke and fire. And Moses spent 40 days on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments and other parts of the law. But as the hours turned to days and the days turned to weeks, 
The people who were left in the valley gradually overcame their awe of cloud, smoke, and fire. And they lost patience, and they became cynical. And so they came to Aaron, and they said in Exodus 32, verse 1, When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to them, Up, make us gods, who shall go before us. As for Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Make us gods. What an arrogant statement. Make us gods. All the while, the presence of God is visible on the mountain, in the cloud, yet down here with tremendous impatience, they want to make their own gods. And we look at that and think, how? But yet, isn't that what we do? We trust God, we say. We want to come before God, we give him our life, yet every day we're making our own decisions because we don't have the patience to wait on God. We're talking 40 days here. And they can still see the cloud. Make us God's. So Aaron took all the gold they collected and fashioned a small calf that satisfied the people. So they began to worship the calf, and this worship gave way to degenerate worship, which gave place to degenerate living. And in essence, what the golden calf represented was they were worshiping themselves. They had made themselves God, and they wanted an object to do what they wanted to do. Up on the mountain, though, God was still speaking to Moses but he knew what was going on below, and he angrily interrupted and sent Moses down to the nation. And how ironic and how horrible the situation was. Because God had just given Moses these words in Exodus 20, verses 2 and 5. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. Wow. And here they are doing exactly that. When Moses returned to the people, he began to deal with their sin the best way he knew. And in seething anger, he took the commandments and shattered them in the stone on the ground. But Moses still had a special relationship, not only with the people, but with God. And God still waited in wrath up on the mountain. What's Moses to do? By this time... Not all the law had been given, but Moses had experienced enough to know that God is a righteous God and he hates sin and he will punish sin. And on the mountain, Moses had said that the people were God's people, but they were also his people. And he loved them. So when the morning came, he began to make the climb back up to the mountain. And in an agony of love and in the most brokenness of heart, 
He says this to God in Exodus 32, 31 and 32. Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now I will forgive their sins. But if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I get this, please blot me out of your book that you have written. Moses so loved the people. He basically said, take me. Take me. Blot me out of your book for the sake of these people. Moses is broken. He loves these people. And he's willing to be pushed aside for them. What about the Apostle Paul? His self-sacrificing spirit is found in Romans 9. He agonized at the evident unbelief of the people Christ had come to save. And nothing in Paul's experience indicated that there would be a mass turning to the Messiah by the Jews and he feared God's judgment upon them. So he says in Romans 9, 1 through 4, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Look, get this. This isn't, I mean, I'm in Christ. The Spirit's bearing witness. Hear me. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They were Israelites, and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Like Moses, like Judah, Paul was willing to give himself for the preservation of those he loved. Now we know how great Moses is. And we know how great Paul is. Now, here's Judah. Pleading his case. Just like they did. Moses offered to pay the price. Paul offered to pay the price. Judah offered to pay the price. If you allow yourselves to just rest in these truths and understand that you have three individuals who are so radically changed, who are so in love with God, but so in love with their people, that they are willing to be blotted out from God. You begin to understand the heart of a true Christian. The spirit of triumph is what we now see. And I want to show the connection between these three. Judah, Moses, and Paul. And here's the connection. The connection is the spirit of Christ. For it is from him, the Savior and Master of all three men, that this transformed behavior comes. These men were made new, and because they were born again, they inevitably showed forth the character and love of the Savior. And this is what happens to all of us 
who walk in the Spirit. This is why we talk about allowing the Spirit to live through us. This is why we talk about dying to self. This is why we talk about the surrendered life. Because when Christ is living through you, you have a heart and compassion for people and a heart and compassion to serve God. And that's what we see radiating through these men in a powerful way. I know they're in the Bible, and I know they're recorded for you and I to learn from. That's why the scriptures are given to us. But do you realize that the reason the recording is so that each one of us can follow in their footsteps? So each one of us can know grace and mercy and how to give grace and mercy. How to show forth grace and mercy to those around us. There is not much grace and mercy in the world today. And sadly, there's not as much amongst Christians either. God so loved the world he gave. Moses so loved God and his people he was willing to give. Paul so loved the people he was sent to he was willing to give. Judah radically changed from the inside out now so loves that he's willing to give. How far beyond even these great biblical examples is the spirit of Jesus himself? You see, Judah was willing to become a slave for Benjamin. Moses was willing to be sent to hell for the sake of his people. Paul was willing to be accursed if it meant the salvation for those he loved. Yes, but not one of them had to do it. But Jesus did. He willingly gave himself over to be killed. When Jesus pleaded for us before the Father, he said, in effect, I'm willing to be sent to hell to save these sinful, rebellious, unbelieving people. While we were yet sinners, he died for us in our ignorance. But here's the key. God replied. Paraphrase. This sacrifice, I will accept. You will be accursed for them. My wrath will fall on you rather than them. On the basis of your sacrifice, I will deal mercifully with them. And Jesus died. Jesus did what Moses couldn't do. Jesus did what Judah couldn't do. Jesus did what Paul couldn't do. But he did it for you and me. He gave his life. You see, Judah, before your eyes, has been set free. 
He's been set free from his sin. He's been set free for the crimes he committed. He's been set free from the attitude and the way he abused and treated people. He's been set free. What is God getting Judah ready for? What is God getting you ready for? You see, there's no sitting idly by in the Christian life. All of us are called to active obedience. And Judah is about to experience the most spectacular forgiveness and mercy he could ever dream of. Next week, Joseph reveals himself. Can you imagine just for a moment? I mean, just the brothers. It's him. One you sold into slavery, the one you wanted to get rid of. And here he is, a prime minister. Can you imagine the heart of these men as they realize the mercy of God that even in the sin they committed, God used it for good? Can you imagine whatever has happened in your life up to today? God will use it for good. That he can transform you. That he can take your life and put it into a place of immense usability in spite of what you've done. I'm just amazed. And the reason I'm amazed is because when I look at these brothers, I go, wow, that's me. Oh, I didn't sell my brother into slavery. I didn't do these terrible things. But I sure enjoyed my life the way I wanted to. And God in his mercy said, no, I'm going to show you what real blessing is. You give up and come to me. And I promise you, I promise you, by the word of God, it's exactly what he wants to do with every one of you, no matter what your age. When he increases and we decrease, the only thing that is left before you is what the Spirit of God is going to do. And there's no substitute. As we close, I want you to Listen to this video for a few moments. I want you to pay very close attention to the words of this song. And I want you to allow it to speak deeply into your heart this morning.